This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Generators Radio Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Earth Generators podcast. So glad you could tune in. I'm Andy Wildman, and this is the second part of my conversation with Paul Cherokino, talking about his wonderful project in the Salish Sea area. It is quietly, unobtrusively called the Ecosystem Guild, and within it, Paul is attempting what I feel is a fundamental kind of work for the viability of our collective future. It's an example of something that can be called biocultural restoration which holds the intention to heal landscapes in a way that also heals our cultural selves and deliberately creates new culture out of physical and experiential practices. Or perhaps more accurately, a project like this doesn't so much create culture, making shared understandings and aspirations like making making paper models, but lovingly creates conditions out of which new culture might arise. As you'll see, designing projects like this is as much about surrender to forces at play as it is about recognising and building necessary structures. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I'd recommend going back to that first, episode 23, as this conversation will make a great deal more sense having gained that context. But to quickly recap, so far Paul has talked about his role in the US government, in what he calls the restoration industry, and how it differs so powerfully from the labour of love that speaks to his deepest self, and also to us. In my Years before being a federal bureaucrat, I spent a lot of time doing uh, landscape construction work. And even then, I remember, uh, you know, there's on some long days, there's always the there's there's moments at the beginning of the day and the end of the day uh, before the work or after the work uh, when you're just still and you're in a place and you're feeling the morning or you're feeling the day end. And, uh, and, you know, those have always been special times, you know, throughout humanity. And, uh, and, and sort of the, you're pausing and you're, you, uh, you've, you've done something and then you pause to reflect and you absorb something of the qualities of a place. And, you know, ever since becoming a environmental professional, I've never been asked to do that. You know, I've never, it's like, okay, everyone, we're going to now pause and take in the, the essence of this place and use that to inform you know, how we how we uh, have how we build this relationship, and so I want to I want to I want to go do that. It's more. not part of your job, and I want to bring as a federal agent. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's uh, we're we're, we're a bang surprising. for the buck kind of organization. We talked about the social structures that are necessary to develop for the project, the uncertainty involved, the unpredictable nature of inviting strangers to camp and work together in a landscape and the sometimes overwhelming nature of projects that are so much larger than yourself. It's really important to recognize that, you know, you might start something like this and kind of be wandering into it and trying it out, and then you find yourself, you know, petrified and struggling, and then think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. But no, actually, that's exactly how it's supposed to feel. Uh, I think you're supposed to feel uh, mm. freaked out mm. when you're playing with an edge. We talked about the physical work that the field station participants are doing together. So, yeah, the work is uh, disturbance, 
propagation and aftercare <laughs> from, a, from a physical perspective. We uh, mm-hmm. muck something up to create an empty niche. We stick something into the niche and then we try and uh, see if it survives or what we have to do to make it survive to be, add a new member of the community. And, uh, and so that's, and you just do it over and over again. And we spoke of many other things, of course. And now we pick up at a point where Paul has just been describing his sense of slow grief that his daughter and, by extension, all our children are not given upon entering this world the birthright of an earth-connected culture. I've always had sort of a, in raising a child in that context, you know, had this sense of a little bit of sadness or tragedy, you know, that why, why is it so hard? Why isn't it her birthright? you know, to have access to land, to have access to, to knowledge and relationship to all living things. So that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, that's the problem, right? That's, that's the, the problem definition that we're kind of wrestling with. It's a, it's a reinvention of culture. For me, this was a profound moment in the conversation, partly because I was at that moment thinking of my own daughter and what I've always wanted and couldn't have for her, and also because Paul was stating a simple truth by which we can see ourselves and the culture we are a part of. It is also a clear barometer by which we can sense the work that is needed in the world, and that is indeed what we go on to talk about. But my response at that somewhat sad junction in the conversation was to take a few quiet moments to let the truth of it all sink in, and to pivot slightly using his description of his daughter's childhood as a chance to ask about his own. So here's where we went from there. Yeah. I'm just, um, I'm curious actually, like when you mentioned that experience of um, going crawling around with your daughter, you know, I guess when I encounter people who have uh, envisioned some projects of this kind of, quality and sophistication and nuance i'm you know it, it makes me curious about uh about their childhoods you know <laughs> so i wonder whether you might be willing to step back in time a moment and consider your experience and how you yeah perhaps a you know a journey that you've been on in in your life that uh is nearly always unexpected, but is the building blocks of this kind of work, I guess. Would you be willing to go there? <laughs> <laughs> definitely uh, radical communism, definitely. I would say, and the gutter, the gutter in the street. <laughs> <laughs> because uh-huh. uh, I always remember uh, when the you know when when the rain falls and I grew up on a hill, and uh, and the, the the all the leaves and sticks and stuff fall in the street and the the rain starts falling and it forms all these pools and then the little riffles and another pool and riffles and you can rearrange the leaves and sticks and make these like imaginary worlds of streams and pools and uh, I really enjoyed that so I, I think about things like that like. Uh, you know that the, the the things you enjoyed uh, when you're young uh, stick with you, and represent sort of qualities of of who you are, whether you want like it or not. Uh, you know, and so I'd lose myself in creating worlds of, you know, gutter water and sticks, and um, the 
I also was a, a, a role-playing gamer. So I was a Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> kid from yeah, me too. like a sixth, seventh, <laughs> eighth grade. I, uh-huh. I I think if you survey, you may find a, uh, a, a <laughs> statistically significant <laughs> correlation <laughs> between fantasy adventure role playing games and uh, uh, you know people trying to create brave new worlds. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I think uh, <laughs> I never thought of that. So I mean. So there's uh, uh, the mapping, the creating maps, you know, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. a big piece of that for me. And yep. also, uh, you know, that I even thought of, I was kind of joking the other day, I was giving a presentation, I said, you know, uh, this restoration camping thing, it's kind of like, it's kind of like LARPing, it's like a live action role playing game, you know, where, like, imagine, <laughs> you know, we're all in a... A, uh, a dysfunctional society living in boxes and we sneak away and uh, sneak down to the river and form a secret society where we're <laughs> cultivating, you know, forest biodiversity for future generations, right? You know, and I can like can give each other names, you know, and it's like, and it's, so I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it is, uh, so I think I was, I remember distinctly being, I think, 13 when uh, my mom took me backpacking in Europe for three months and Mm -hmm. I was um really disappointed you know uh I I I really thought there were there were actual you know leprechauns and and uh and 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 wild (laughs) wild magic you know in the roots of Europe you know from my fantasy adventure reading you know I was uh uh, and I found a bunch of you know noisy smelly cities and you know like all all the rest you know so it was uh so I think uh, uh, now I, I'm probably just recreating a giant fantasy adventure uh, for myself in my middle age or something. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I think the last piece of, is definitely yeah. my... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to tell a, a parallel story. I, um, when I was young, we, um, I grew up in Western Australia in, in uh, Fremantle, and uh, we would uh, drive regularly down to the you know, southwest coast and Margaret River area, a piece of property down there. And uh, we'd drive through this um, incredible uh, stand of um, Tewitt Forest, and uh, it was very beautiful. It was very sort of um, very flat, but um, these you know incredibly robust trunks, you know, that sort of disappeared on into the horizon and. You know, obviously it's a forest, so the horizon is very short. But I had, you know, every time we'd drive through this forest, I would imagine myself, you know, getting, putting on a backpack and traveling for days through this, through this forest, you know, like in just what adventures I would have in this giant wilderness. And um, mm. to my embarrassment in, in, you know, as when I got to my late teens and actually tried this, you know, drive myself and you know, like and I... You know, got you know my backpack ready and all this sort of stuff, and I walked through the forest. And I, within ten minutes, I'd reached the other side, and, <laughs> <laughs> and discovered that it was a tiny patch of you know. And I like later on, I actually joined a campaign with the Wilderness Society to protect this forest, and we actually <laughs> did protect it. But mm. um, you know, mm. but the sense of like shock. <laughs> that this was not somewhere I mm-hmm. could adventure for days or weeks on end. You know, it was just like, 
it was appalling. <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. and many other, and I found that actually the same, the same, um, I traveled around Australia for seven or eight months and in a van and, you know, similar experience, you know, just to discover how much of Australia is, you know, degraded, neglected, <laughs> you know, farmland as opposed to, you know, a great wilderness that I, that, that lived in my imagination when I was, you know, young and I think was fed by mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was, it was a pretty seminal experience actually to, to sort of, um, be, be disillusioned like that. Mm. It's interesting that some of those patterns, I, w- I was just, I just recently reread my, uh, my college, uh, senior project. Uh, I still have a copy on a dot matrix printer i think and it was um i was in that in that uh piece of work i was writing and documenting uh working on the same issues that i find myself working on now okay you know it was it was fascinating to see like you know 30 years later thinking about human relationship to place stewardship institutional structure how it affects our ability to do stewardship it's like i don't know if it's good or bad you know to think to admit that i am like still chewing on the same piece of gristle you know that i (laughs) the last 33 years (laughs) something like that you know but i feel like there's um there's something there you know if i just chew enough there's something there But I think in, in the Northwest, uh, you know, think, think like these, these things repeat themselves. Like just recently, I think in, in the Salish Sea, in, in this Washington state of the United States or in that sort of Northwestern corner of the uh, United States, um, there really is amazing sort of wealth of landscape. I mean, we've only been colonizing this space for, you know, six generations or so. And it really was a, an incredible, and you know, an abundance you know the the you know the Salish cultures that lived here left it in just beautiful condition. You know, after four hundred generations, they left it in beautiful condition, and it took us six to break it. But we haven't really even broken it completely yet. You know, there's uh, and so we have you know parks and forests and remnants that. And I remember uh, it was really in college when I got out to those. You know that 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 I. I my family planted lots of seeds, but I think it was when I was in college and started backpacking that, you know, I had that, uh, those experiences. Uh, I think I mentioned it before, even of just, you know, putting things in a bag, putting it on my back and then walking away mm, from the road. Mm. Uh, I still, I, that there's a feeling there that was really significant to me that, um, was yes. formative yeah, you know, to recognize yeah. that su- sur- survival you know, the meaning of survival in that context, you know, it's, uh, gets clarified, you know, and, and that ever since then, that process of thinking, okay, what do I really need? Okay. What do I really need? Mm. As they always say, the mountaineers, uh, paradigm is, uh, take all the things you're going to carry up the mountain and put them in three piles. There's, uh, the, the things that you absolutely need to survive, the things you think you might need and the things that, uh, uh, would, might make the trip better. And you throw out the first two piles, or the last two piles. And mm. <laughs> the, the, it's only the, so it helps you refine your understanding of, you know, what it means to sustain a human body and to, you know, feel good doing it. Mm. Mm. And that last little thing you said just reminds me of a, of a question that I wanted to ask. You know, 
feel good doing it. I find the idea that you've put forth that restoration work should be relaxing, pleasurable and fun, like to be both obvious for the sake of our collective future <laughs> and counterintuitive to, you know, modern mindset, I guess. <laughs> Do you, mm-hmm. you have some thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, it's the kind of thing where things that you're attracted to uh, because they feel meaningful and important and interesting, you know, at some point in your young life, and then you uh, turn them into a profession and then they turn into drudgery, you know, <laughs> and uh, as we always like to, we always like to joke about that. Like, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and adults and old people like, you know, kind of looking knowingly at each other like, oh, yes, you know, you too will soon suffer an eternal drudgery, you know. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that's not funny. <laughs> no. That's not funny at all. <laughs> that's really true. So, yeah, right. So, you know, that's the, and there's a lot of reasons why you know we ended up that way and it's good to unpack them a little bit i think Mm. um you know given given that um i mean the i just listened to a fascinating podcast on the way down here recently with a couple of anthropologists you know talking about you know sort of cultural anthropology and evolution of relationships between people Mm -hmm. and sort of the uh the environmental conditions that lead to certain structures like hierarchies which is you know, kind of a euphemism for domination of people mm-hmm. by people. Mm-hmm. And that the, the critical ingredient is dependency, right? You need, you need to get people dependent, and then you can tell them what to do. You need to control their food, then you can tell them what to do. You need to mm-hmm. control their ability to have shelter, and then you tell them what to do. And you can see that play out in our, uh, you know, the, the colonization of our region, which is in, you know, recent history and memory. You know, the, the, the way in which we destroyed the Salish culture that took care of this place for 400 generations was uh, uh, destroy their food source, uh, prevent them from their uh, being able to gather food, uh, destroy communal housing, uh, destroy their free transportation, uh, steal their children and destroy their language. You know, so it was a, a systematic process of making them dependent on industrial society to meet their needs. And that, that's, in, I think, in every colonization, that's a critical step. And we're just, you know, you know, people like me, we're just the, the survivors, you know, we're, that are sort of tagging along because we're still dependent, you know. And uh, uh, after a point, you know, then we're all survivors, you know, together kind of wandering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not as if we're not also in that situation of, of dependency. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we've... I suppose having been in a you know colonizing culture for you know many generations that it's sort of you know the the system is reasonably old now but um you know we're we're and it you know it's become natural <laughs> it's become naturalized I guess that um that we mm-hmm. should be you know dependent on you know creating some kind of specialization that will um you know um, earn us some of these, um, you know, tokens, fiat currency, and you know, and exchange that for what we need to live. You know, shelter and food, etc. Um, it's like, yeah, it is uh, definitely a, uh, a crippling dependency. 
um, you know, that many of us are finding, um, you know, almost intolerable as we're sort of, you know, wanting to contribute to some kind of better future that uh, might help us survive. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, why Mollison and permaculture was, you know, the, the, the angle that they were trying to be revolutionary around was about, uh, you know, shifting away from, you know, dependency to explore uh, sufficiency. And I think the, the one thing that we didn't figure out in this sort of this permaculture vision was of doing it together. I think uh, 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 we maintained the uh, individualistic view. Mm, I think, very uh, true, and, yeah. And then, and then began exploring personal or, or family unit sufficiency, or maybe at best, you know, small community sufficiency, mm. but never explored uh, at, at larger scales, which is, you know, yeah. why uh, chapter 14, we only got to that in chapter 14 of the, of the handbook. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a pretty short chapter compared to the others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, permaculture, you know, um, kept a lot of, you know, those dysfunctional elements but yeah I was just thinking back to my previous question about um you know the restoration work should be relaxing and you know pleasurable and mm -hmm. um so forth and I was just thinking but then again you know the kind of restoration that is necessary now in our you know yeah. massively and deeply yeah. degraded landscapes it's not mm -hmm. something we're going to get done in our leisure time you know so yeah, <laughs> I'm wondering what yeah. you think about the gap between what's in place now and what mm -hmm. we'll need to be doing to become a viable culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's where, yeah, I don't, it's interesting because when I say a lot of these landscapes are neglected and it's not by chance, right? You know, it's that uh, there, there's typically some damaging event that degrades them. Uh, we no longer look at them as a, a resource base. And we no longer use them as a resource base. And so then there's no point in investing, you know, in, in that. Uh, and so that's, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the, I think that there's no single answer, you know, to that kind of question. But I think that there's a, a number of different ways uh, to think about it. And uh, I think uh, in some ways my, my bigger fear is that uh, if we are, uh, because of, climate change and shifting climates, we no longer have uh, reliable international food transport systems, you know, then we're suddenly going to realize we have to uh, grow food and we're going to do so gracelessly and sort of rip apart the last of our local ecosystem, you know, scavenging for grubs, you know, and, and, and not figure out how to, to tend well, you yeah. know, and so then we'll be looking in every nook and cranny for, uh, uh, you know, food resources. So I like the idea of, um, in some ways, I see this as a um, by reclaiming uh, these uh, important, ecologically important lands, and uh, learning how to tend them. I'm not necessarily trying to get to an end point where we've restored everything. Mm. You know, it's like if that's if that's your destination. If your destination is you know, 500,000 acres in 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and so therefore you have to do 50,000 acres a year, you know, and then therefore you're going to pull out the machines, you yeah. know, and the spray and, and the, and the troops and you're going to go at it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and so I think in my mind, um, it's not that 
we have so much work to do, and so therefore we have to employ you know, brutal industrial labor forces to accomplish all that work, but rather we have so much work to do and we're still going the wrong direction. Yeah. You know, so that the job isn't necessarily to do all the work in a certain time period. Mm. I see the job is to just change direction. And even if mm. we're going in that other direction slowly, mm. that's still good enough. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the complete cultural neglect of our relationship with the earth. That's the problem, not the amount of earth that we have destroyed, <laughs> yeah. neglected, you know? yeah. <laughs> and so, 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 so I, I'd be happy, you know, with a pivot, you know, and to, to reallocate assets within a community towards very slow incremental process of reclaiming the, the, the health and biodiversity and productivity and relationships with this river forest, you know, and I think that, uh, my suspicion is if, if it was something we cared about and we weren't really distracted by other things that in my personal opinion are not worth caring about, mm -hmm. you know, giving, given where we're at, if we weren't distracted by consumerism, mm -hmm. uh, there would be, it would be really, and, and if we had the means, if we had the cultural framework, if we had the birthright, if we had the infrastructure to teach and learn and raise people up in the process of restoration, then we would have plenty of, resources it wouldn't even mm. be a concern it's just a matter of time mm -hmm. right. so that's that's a, a sh at the same time you know i'm in an industry that's constantly prioritizing inadequate resources and looking for bang for the buck you know and it's just it's it's a that's in some ways it's a it's a symptom rather than a problem mm. Mm. yeah yeah that's fascinating I, I did want to add something. I, I was just thinking uh -huh. about the, even as I talk about this not being in a hurry idea, I, 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 then, then immediately I, I remind myself, you know, we're actually in the middle of a major extinction event in the, on the Northwest coast and the, the, the loss of, of keystone species like Chinook salmon, you know, represent uh, extermination of tribal culture. You know? And so I think even as I, um, think about that idea of not being in a hurry at the same time i the the other issue is that the the uh the patient or the partner so to speak the earth is bleeding out here it's there's some deep wounds you know and mm -hmm. uh, and so that's to be reckoned with there's uh you know and and i think that you know figuring out how to redeploy the uh industrial capabilities in sort of a, an attempt to staunch the bleeding uh, is probably essential but that's sort of a, uh, I think, uh, I also try not to take on, it's like a, my work, your work and God's work, you know, kind of question. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't want to, I want to make the industrial system responsible for healing the wounds of the industrial system. And at the same time, try to cultivate a sane cultural system simultaneously. And one doesn't preclude the other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I find the question of urgency really sort of ongoing and vexing sometimes because you know on one level I'm totally down with it you know the the urgency and yet maybe it's mostly because culturally what we do with a sense of urgency has not been reached much sophistication and so I feel like the sophistication um, and nuance and better direction that sort of pivot that you were talking about earlier 
often comes with the territory of slowing down. So if by what we mean is slowness is an ability to stop and think and see and pivot at a higher level of, um, as Danella Meadows would put it, sort of leverage within the system of our, mm. you know, our own operating system perhaps, then then I'm I'm good with that. But I guess if it means being patient and exploring all the sort of all all the feels and, and you know all that sort of thing, you know, there's a level of um, I'm happy to step. I tend to you know happy to step back into the urgency when it can, when it comes to that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a difficult question, and um, it reminds me. I was reading a, an interview with. Uh, between Tim De Christopher and Wendell Berry recently, and De Christopher asked um, Wendell Berry whether uh, there was some uh, somehow it came up that like well, you know what's the limit of your responsibility, and um, Berry replied that the the effective limit of of our responsibility is our own capability, you know, our own limits mm-hmm. um, as people, mm-hmm. and I guess it's just. Mm-hmm. You know, this, I guess is one of the reasons that I'm so interested in design, and maybe this can lead to a new question, mm. is that I'm, you know, sense that having a, you know, having a kind of a, a level of design literacy within our culture to transform our, our questions, transform our the way we operate, you know, can, can <laughs> dramatically increase not only the effectiveness but the grace with which we do things. So. I guess maybe that can segue into a question that I had that which which was about your creation, your your project and offering and whatever you want to call it. Um, which is, you know, I noticed there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of design thinking, you know, going gone into what you've what you've created. And I, for example, I I was fascinated by the the design that you have of the ecosystem guild, how they break down into groups and circles and mobile field stations and guild strongholds. Um, and there's also the design of the camping, restoration camping experience itself. Can you kind of explore for us um, why you settled on those on those patterns and uh, what were the insights that uh, that created them? Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because I think they've they've evolved. You know, since I first started kicking things around, you know, and in, in concepts and ideas, and I try something, and then I realize, oh, that's not going to work, or I need to, you know, it's, and then I, I get distracted by my own sense of, oh, that needs to happen, you know. So how is that going to fit in, you know? And so, I think it's just been, um, it, it feels there was no there was no grand uh, design experiment that led to, you know, that particular structure, and I expect that it may not survive the year. You know, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, that, that there, what it is, is, is it looks like, it looks like a structure, you know, it looks like it's a structure, but it is a, it's a giant hypothesis yep. of how to capture and direct energy yep. and, and in particular capture and direct human energy. And it's, which, and it's very similar in my mind, uh, to the way in which a, you know, holistic ecological design would think about water and nutrients and temperature and you know so sun energy you know as and, and you're just trying to to manage these flows and pay attention to the origin and capture and recycle and spread and sink and all that stuff you know so 
it's really I'm just holding an ecological design mindset as I bumble around among energies I can't I can barely see right because that, that's the, <laughs> the, the challenge of working in human systems is you're yeah. working with these very we, we I mean I, I, I have an ecological education and I can walk into any ecosystem and eventually kind of figure out what's generally going on you know just by paying attention to you know nutrients and water and mm-hmm. sun energy and biodiversity and you know different roles and adaptations that repeat and repeat and repeat so I have a, a whole toolkit for making sense of ecological systems but I don't have uh, a corollary um, map and toolkit for working in human systems uh, other than the institutional models you know that I have inherited you know, from my position and job and such. Mm, mm. So I, so I find myself in this idea of like this idea of, um, guest and host. Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out how to describe this relationship, which wasn't, you know, which was not necessarily the essence of the relationship was not contractual, you know, right? Because typically we would engage a relationship between two entities in the form of a contract or an oh, MOU. Yes. And there's yep. a scope, a schedule, and a budget, you know, and you would <laughs> then you would define the scope, schedule, and budget, and then you would have accountability and all this kind of stuff, right? And that's that's this the model mm. that uh, I my entire industry operates under. And so I was well when you kind of start wandering around, there's a, a pamphlet I read years ago that sort of stuck in my head was uh, it was a Quaker view of international policy. And it was uh, the Quaker church, uh, you know, from England into the United States and probably elsewhere. I think that the largest Quaker community is in East Africa now, I think. But we kind of know them as, you know, uh, 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 pacifists and consensus, you know, creating type, type of, of, of church. Um, their reckoning with international policy is that the same rules that govern relationships between two humans should govern relationships between two nations. You know, that the, the same sense of, you know, seeing that of God in another that we would do with another human, we should do the same, you know, as we look across uh, between these mega entities that we've constructed, you know. So I think that, again, it was this idea of uh, how can we personalize what this space, the space of doing restoration, getting on land, getting tools, getting resources together, doing restoration, how can we sort of, what does it mean to deinstitutionalize that? What does it mean to decolonize that? What's, what is it, you, you de, all of these things are defined by that which we are not. We're not institutional, we're not, you know, colonizers. Mm. What are we then? You know, what's left or what remains or what, you know, is it that we've forgotten about relationship that, you know, and so we're neighbors, we're friends, we're guests and hosts, you know, and it just sort of seemed quite natural, but, it, and I wouldn't say it was a design process. It was just like, you know, kind of wandering aimlessly. And then the, you trust the compost and things that you stuffed in the compost pile, you know, six years ago, pop up and help you solve problems. Mm-hmm. Well, I would actually would actually describe that as a design process. <laughs> I guess it's um it's a design process that's unfam- unfamiliar to yeah. the uh, to <laughs> the modern world, um, and I won't go into that too much because that you know I could talk about I could talk about that all day long. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean you oh, know yeah. 
uh, I think we've had previous conversations, yeah. you know, like, you know, a little bit on um, Earth Generators about um, Dan Palmer's work, for example, with, you know, living design process. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I'm investing my, you know, professional energy in. And yeah, like as soon as I said the design, you know, and asked you that question, I immediately went, oh, hang on. In my mind, I'm referring to design as a, you know, a living process because I've gotten comfortable with that. But um, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in most people's minds, we'll hear, people listening to this will hear some kind of, you know, master planning process in which, mm. you know, design comes before action and that's the responsible mm. way to do it. All those sorts yeah. of, um, there's a multitude of, uh, of conditioning we have around design. And, um, but I guess for me, it is loosening all that stuff off and letting it kind of, um, letting some of it go. I'm suppose I'm still responding to, you know, the creation of structure because, you know, when I you know, like look over what you're doing and I, and I see, you know, the groups, the circles, the mobile field stations and guild strongholds, they have names, they have, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's a structure, um, and yeah. the yeah. fact that you have created it by bumbling around and sort of like, and it's a giant hypothesis just makes it all the stronger in my mind because, mm. you know, that's how I see mm -hmm. it working. It's, yeah. you know, to a lot of people that sounds just sort of um, organic and just making it up, you know, as you go along. And for sure there's an element mm -hmm. of that, um, which I think is necessary mm -hmm. because, yeah. you know, out of humility, we need to understand that we don't understand. Um, and we've yeah. got to discover. So, yeah, I guess, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm heartened to, to hear that you, <laughs> you do it that way. <laughs> so, you know, instead of needing to go down that uh, master planning process, but yeah, you go. Yeah. In, in defense of master planning, there's two, two pieces. I think it's, it's, it's re replacing, replacing master planning with frameworks is, I think, a way to uh -huh. think about yeah. it. Uh, you know that instead of uh, the, and so I think the tooth that I one one that stuck in my head was a uh, uh, Kinevin framework, uh, uh, David Snowden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of of it's a uh, important article written in the Harvard Business Review was about leadership in different kinds of systems, and so uh, this is a complex system, mm -hmm. meaning it is responding to treatment and it is behavior is changing, and you cannot understand it. Uh, in, in, in abstraction. So it's, it's so that then the appropriate method of mm. interacting is to, is to poke it, <laughs> see what it does, and then poke it again, you know, and then see what it does. And then take a step forward and poke it again, you know, right? So that's, I mean, if, if, if you are dealing with a complex system where you can't, you can't map it mm. and it's going, its behavior is going to change based on your interaction, then the only thing you, if you do, if you spend a lot of time planning, you've just wasted a lot of time because by the time you poke it a few times, the plan has to change. So, uh, so Precisely. having some way of, of, of thinking about a relationship with a unknown and you are just kind of basically sort of sneaking around the unknown trying to, and so all of these terms, like I say, stronghold, I don't know what a stronghold is. Mm, it's a mm. it's a placeholder mm. for for an idea. It's a placeholder for a a conceptualization of people need to have some way of holding strongly to an idea together. Yes. You know, and have it affect how they live in a place. So those places are strongholds. Yeah. You know, yeah. how how that emerges, you know, what that means, the strongholds build infrastructure and they're able to leverage that infrastructure to do things to support each other to go places you know and so 
that's that's all. So it's just a conceptual placeholder. Mm-hmm. Thinking that it's probably something like that is necessary, you know, and it's necessary because it has to do that in order. You know, I have to have a stronghold in order to support someone uh, at a field station. So I have a stronghold, which is my foundation, my platform, mm-hmm. and my community that enables me to therefore support the creation of a field station in a new location. So the existence of field stations is dependent on the existence of strongholds in a way. Yep. You know, otherwise, you'd be permanently nomadic. So just, just basically to follow up on the, the, uh, the uh, sort of making permaculture stronger kind of concept, yep. you know, the idea of there's a hole and there's probably two parts. <laughs> and I'm going to draw the line between the two parts this way because it embodies this function and let's work from there. So yeah. the world is divided into field stations and strongholds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And this, that's precisely the kind of um, design that I like is that you know, you're know you responding to a, to a need. And it might only be a temporary need, but um, you're responding, creating something and then seeing how it intera- interacts with the, the actual world, because this, you know we are we're just working with our imaginations when we design things, and so it's part of the idea behind the sort of living design process is that you actually need to hold back a lot of your design work while you interact with reality mm. and receive a lot of information, because when you react, you know, <laughs> you're talking about a whole, you know, and. You're, yeah. you're always working with a whole, and when you interact with it, you do something, the whole changes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've created some more context <laughs> to the whole, and so you've got to go back and actually look at it again and respond to yeah. it again. It's a, it's just a sort of an ongoing process, and it sounds to people kind of like, I don't know how it sounds actually sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I may sound all sorts of things. <laughs> Almost crazy yeah. and unworkable. Perhaps. Like you don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but to me, it's like it's, it has um, incredible beauty, that process. And I, can, I, I see you doing it. And mm. It just gets, it's, it, it, you know, it's fascinating. But I see that we've actually covered. Well, and there's something real there. Yeah. Sorry, go, go on. <laughs> I just wanted to, to, to briefly uh, that, that the, uh, there is a, expectation in our culture mm-hmm. that you do know what you're doing <laughs> and that you're able to represent it yes. preferably in an elevator speech in order oh, yeah. to secure resources and support and funding uh-huh. right yep. so so there, i am also playing this weird game where i am doing this emergent whole systems design process because i don't know how else to do it yeah and at the same time i'm constantly pretending like i know what i'm doing and at the same time, admitting that I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and seeing who at the appropriate around. time, like, who's yeah. T- so in some, <laughs> like, because so it's, it's like this. There's a, there's also this social filter process, right? So like yes. how I represent yeah. what I'm doing filters who sticks around, you know, and how it, it, and I've noticed that that as well. So there's 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 like so many layers to this I, I can't keep track of them sometimes yeah. and so what i always i always like to joke i i, I prefer to over design mm-hmm. uh think i know exactly how it's all supposed to be mm-hmm. and then walk in and get kicked in the head a couple times you know <laughs> and then you know get that feedback of 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 getting beaten up and then i really learn you know the lesson <laughs> of what of what's real and what's not oh you yeah know, so i, I mean I and there's all sorts of, quotes of ex- that, accepting that yeah 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 
Well, same, yeah. I mean, there's like <laughs> there's all these quotes that come to mind. Come from some several of them come from the military. I think you know one of them being you know planning is essential, but plans are useless. Um, I think it was Eisenhower. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Another one, no plan, hmm. you know, survives the first encounter with the enemy. You know, <laughs> that's you know, very, yeah, very exactly warlike message. But um, yeah, and, I, and and there was that also that one from Mike Tyson about you know <laughs> everyone has a plan to until you punched in the face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all very violent, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> but, well, we're. we're we 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 are both we are both beautiful, loving, peaceful creatures and horribly violent yeah. creatures. Yeah, you know, and so true. and and hunting hunting is violent. Yeah. If you've ever you know uh, slaughtering chickens, mm-hmm. very violent. Mm-hmm. I've noticed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a. I, it's fun to 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 recognize that there's a, a, a lot of complexity uh, in being human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm noticing that we've been at this for quite some time and I'm really enjoying it. I really wanted to ask you <laughs> questions about the Salish Sea Wiki and your, you know, eight season year. <laughs> it's like there's um, there's other things that I wanted to cover, but I think perhaps, you know, perhaps people can go and check it out. <laughs> so, uh, mm. you know, because mm. there's, there's a lot that, um, you know, there is a lot that Paul's doing to, to make this work and, and uh, I think it has... Tremendous elegance and and beauty to it. Been very, very attracted to not just the what you're achieving, but the style and <laughs> grace with which you're going about it. So maybe we should wrap up. I think the number one the number one yeah. quality the, yeah the, the number one quality yeah. is is belligerent persistence. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, because every one of these things because i mean what i'm scared about is that they say oh look what paul's doing and he's done all this stuff and i i've i've built a platform over 33 years of doing nothing but you know ecosystem work Mm -hmm. so i'm i've been gathering and accumulating resources and tools and networks and ideas you know for a long time every one of these pieces started out as a stupid idea that failed many times Mm -hmm. you know and 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 there's a like i can i could describe a trail of wreckage you know, uh, behind everything that seems to stick around. So I don't, you know, I think that, that I, I don't want to, um, I'm really excited about the stuff I'm working on and I always have been, you know, and I hate, I hate letting something go if it feels like it's, if it means something, if it's ripe. And I, even, even when I'm, I know I'm doing too much. So I think that's the, it's a belligerent persistence is, is really useful more so than you know because good ideas you can find figure you can with belligerent persistence you can ferret out good ideas over time yes <laughs> yeah 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 that's beautiful and you know perhaps some i think there's a pattern here that you know i'm experiencing your belligerent persistence as beauty and grace <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and uh yeah but um yeah so much that goes into these things behind the scenes and um uh, I just know the kind of, the kind of effort that uh, is involved in in making something like this, you know, even begin to happen. So you know, I find it inspiring that this that this is going on. Yeah. So thank you. It's uh, it's great work that you're doing, and I hope people have enjoyed you, Andy. hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. Not only does it does it feel good to. Uh, have people make you feel good um, but it it's it helps me to try and articulate 
uh, you know, what I'm doing. I, I really value these opportunities to try and, and it's, it's rehearsal. This is like, this is, uh, having to explain myself is a kind of planning. It's rehearsing, you know, a storytelling process. And I, every time I get to rehearse storytelling, I really appreciate it. For sure. Yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you, Paul. This has been really fun. And I so appreciate you coming along to talk to me. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Guaranteed. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you're already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, Come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth. <laughs>